The housing market is one of those things that is always on the mind. No matter what country you live in, the thought that a sudden market change could leave you without a home is terrifying. But when is the right time to buy? You don't want to overpay and be burdened by a mortgage beyond your means. That's where my expert today comes in. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Orly Dudai. If there's a job in the field of housing, Orly has worked in it over the last 30 years in numerous countries around the world. She's on the show today to show why the dream that everyone has to buy at the cheapest point is not actually the best time to buy. We have a brief connection issue about halfway through the episode. Unfortunately, these things happen when talking through an internet program across states or even countries. Luckily, Orly is so good at explaining that I was actually able to just fill in the short gap on my side post-interview. Just Don't be shocked when I'm suddenly speaking for her. Let's find ourselves a home. Welcome to the show, Orly Dudai. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yes, so glad to have you on the show. Why don't you give a brief introduction about yourself for the audience? Absolutely. I'm passionate about real estate. I'm an architect, a contractor, rehabber, investor, realtor, and mortgage loan officer. So definitely, that's my passion. And what got you into all this? Uh, Through the years, I actually worked many years as an architect. At a certain point, I began on rehabbing and investing. Then I added the, the aspect of to be a realtor. And just the last few years, I'm a passionate of numbers. I did my license for a mortgage loan officer, and I work in that for a few years. And that's, I think, what really brought me the perspective that I need to do something with all that information. Because as a mortgage loan officer, you speak with hundreds of people all the time. And that really gave me a bigger insight of the homeowners, aspiring homeowners who want to purchase, who want to refinance, And that was really brought an urgency to make sure I deliver certain information that everyone should know, because as an investor, you look at that in a certain angle that you know the benefits, the challenges, the taxes as a homeowner is a totally other perspective. And uh, this is really what led me to write the book specifically for homeowners or aspiring homeowners, what you really need to know. Yeah, it's great. So how many years total do you have in from like the very start of your architecture to now? About 30 years. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> That's great. Thanks. And actually in several countries, languages, locations, and also it's fascinating how the perception, what people are looking for is different from one country to another. Yeah. I mean, is there one country that has been like your favorite to do it in so far? No, I think it's uh, it's just different because uh, certain countries, what's acceptable, the sizes, the desires, 
And also what people wanted in uh, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and today's standard are different. And you learn from everything. I am sure. That's like always something changing where you're like, oh, yeah, if you're working in this country, like they're going to want something much more compact or functional. And if you want something over here, like they're going to want something much more showy and elaborate. And when I grew up, you know, it was very common, like in an apartment, a bathroom and a half, and no one complained about that. And today in certain areas, there are other desires. What is today's standard? So it feels like the right place to start learning about all of this is where we would start looking. So what should people be looking for if they are looking to buy a house or a property? So the first thing that intrigued me, that is very common when you want to buy a house that you're told, go to the mortgage loan officer and he'll tell you how much you can borrow. And that's a mistake, number one, because you will get the right answer, but for the wrong question because he will tell you how much you, you can borrow based on your condition, your work, your income, your expenses today. That's not necessarily the number that is convenient for you. And it can be convenient for you more or less. And it's not a mistake when I said even more. For example, the number one question before we get into how much should you borrow and how does it make sense that it's cheaper to borrow more, what do you want to get from this transaction? Yes, it's clear you want a roof over your head and you want to own it. But do you want to pay the minimum per month because of your budget? Do you want to make sure that you accumulate wealth along the way? Do you want to make sure that in a certain given time in your life, you're free and clear of mortgage? Or not just that you're free and clear for mortgage, you want even some income to cover taxes and insurance. So many times it's how much can I afford? But there's other questions that you need to ask yourself. Gotcha. People kind of go in because they're like, well, how much can I borrow? And then they aim for that max number and they're like, all right, let's just, you know, I qualify for 250 and I'm going to go straight to 250. And sometimes, for example, when I ask my clients, you know, if suddenly taxes increase or insurance increase, will it be a financial burden? And very often I hear the answer, yes. And then I said, you know what? They always go up. That's not a surprise. So... Definitely, we need to be prepared of that. And it's also that stage in life, because what you're looking in your 20s, 30s, or 50s, it's not the same. And in any given time, you need to think what you want from that property before you even look for that. For example, if you want to accumulate wealth and you think maybe I'll move on and I'll rent it, it needs to make sense from the beginning, because you can buy an apartment that the HOA does not allow you to rent it. You know, certain things can disqualify you from the beginning or the numbers doesn't add up. Now, one of the things that everyone should know that all the advantages of primary residence, that mean it can be fixed interest rate, minimum uh, down payment and all that. It can be up to four units. That means you can buy a duplex, a triplex, a quadruplex with all those benefits. And that's an example if you have existing uh, tenants in the three other units in the quadruplex, it can be a higher mortgage, but out of pocket, you'll spend less. But then it means what kind of mortgage you take that will allow you to walk away after a year, two or three, if you want, and move on and just keep it as a rental. 
or you actually can go on that solution when you want to downsize and you say, you know what? Not just that I don't want to pay a mortgage. I want someone to fund my expenses when I have taxes, home insurance or repairs. So everything, you know, you should think about all the options before you go to the mortgage loan officer because the lender and the realtor are on your side. They're an amazing help, but you need to know the options and guide them. What do, what do you want? Yeah, it's very much like your realtor wants to make a sale, but they are not going to you know shoot for something that you can't afford anyway because there's a chance everything just falls apart. And your lender doesn't want you to like fail a payment because they're like, if you miss this, like I have loaned you money. If you can't pay it back, like I lose money. So I want you to be successful at this. But you know what's uh, really interesting? That many times the way the lender calculate if you're eligible or not is different from lender to lender. So if you get a no from one lender, it still depends what program did you ask for? Can you qualify for that? Or can you qualify for the same with another lender? Because many people think about how much is my income based on that, how much I can qualify. The keyword is really DTI, the debt to income ratio. You can have a very high income, but very high debt to income because you have a lot of debt. Sure. It's kind of like if I owned, you know, I have a, a great income where you're like, yeah, I could support, you know, a fancy car and a house on the same budget, but I bought four cars. Now I have suddenly a lot of debt. Exactly. And what they uh, calculate, it's those minimum monthly payment, monthly obligation, that versus your, your gross income. Now, here's another thing. Some mortgages will allow you up to 57%, but that's not your net. That's your, that's your gross income. So how much really money is left from the money you bring home and what other expenses do you have? So you can be qualified, but you'll be in an extreme financial burden every day. Is it worth it? So that's why you need to see the bigger picture. And what do you want to get from that purchases? Yeah. So what are some of those right and wrong ways to go about getting a loan? Like, is there specific lenders you should look for or avoid? First of all, it's to understand the basics that you need to know your credit score. It's never too early because sometimes even if you take one or two years before you plan to buy the home, it gives you time to address what's need to be addressed. And in the credit, they look into things, the credit score and the credit report. And you can go on your own to the three credit bureau to ask a copy. First of all, sometimes there are mistakes. So it gives you time to address them and repair them. Many of the mortgages will ask for a minimum of 620 of credit score. You have some programs for less, but you won't have the best option with the 620 or 640. So if you want to improve that, it gives you time. Second, with a credit report, they'll take from there all the information of minimum monthly payment. So you can calculate yourself what is your debt to income. If you think about how much will be the mortgage, the taxes, the home insurance, but the minimum payment of every credit card, car payment, and other expenses as student loans, that can give you a number. You have some government loans that can allow you to go up to 57%. 
but that's a challenge because really how much is left every month and what are your other expenses? Because when we say those numbers, it's not food, it's not the car, it's not a, living the life, you know, what you want or don't want, what do you spend about? So what is your comfort level? Now, uh, you have other mortgages like the conventional that each one has their advantage and disadvantage. Don't forget that even if right now, just to be able to be the, do the big step, it's, co it's convenience for you, one or the other, you can always refinance. For example, one question that I get a lot now with the interest rate being so high, should I buy? My personal opinion, let the numbers speak. Because remember a year ago, interest rates were low. When someone wanted to buy something, there were bidding wars. You were really overpaying significantly every home. Right now, people are concerned in some areas of uh, the state, you still have the bidding wars. So when you calculate the numbers, sometimes knowing that you don't have a lot of competition, you can negotiate the price, hopefully, you know, asking or less with a higher interest rate. But you know that in a year and a half or two, you can refinance. If in a year, after, a year and a half or two, rates will be down, you can get a really low maybe interest rate, maybe, we can uh, never know for sure, but you're competing and overpaying. Now, if you know that that's not your dream mortgage, even though it's fixed for 30 years, make sure you don't pay a lot to get the mortgage. You know, don't try to negotiate a few thousands more just to reduce that in a quarter of a interest rate because you might not break even in two, three, four years and you'll refinance in two. So it's really to let the numbers speak in that, to know that you need a good credit, you need to have a clean credit because sometimes too, too many uh, challenges or unpaid bills will affect your credit score and really will have a more challenge for them to, to approve you. Now in government loans, that you have the FHA, you have the VA, the government put the rules, but lenders can put additional rules on top of that. So in the government loans, that I meant that one lender will approach it in one way, another one, another lender in another way. And I have a lot of questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> is, is there like a credit score in other countries where they're like, oh yeah, we also track a credit score much like the US does? I don't know Europe. I don't know in the Middle East, there's none. In South America, I'm thinking all the places I lived. I wasn't aware in uh, Mexico, Argentina. I, I'm not aware of that. I was going to say that might be a thing we just do. But does it make a large difference in like the loan you get as well? If you say like, oh, one person has a 650, the other person has a 725, and the third person has an 800. Does it make a large difference in your loan? Yes, because uh, it's a few criteria. One thing is the interest rate that they won't allow you a certain interest rate. If it's really it, what it means that you're riskier borrower, that's what it means. So they want to guarantee that they don't put themselves in a position, as you said, that they won't get the money. Now, sometimes it can limit what even what can you do. For example, if you have a home. And with all the appreciation, someone want to cash out. They want to refinance and get some cash back. 
if you have a low credit score, they can limit you up to a lower amount. You cannot maximize that. So the lender just wants to guarantee himself that he's more in the safer spot. So doing that, it's really going back to the finance to know if you should uh, cover some credit cards and, and really what's your approach to make sure that you're, you're in the best position. And is there some point where it kind of like it stops being really beneficial and you've like you've hit a point where you're like anything over yeah. 750 is kind of all the same? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, above 700, 720, it's good. You know, it won't have that impact because that means you're a good borrower. You're safe. You're paying back. That's what it means that uh, the risk is minimized in that point. Gotcha. So you. And you know what? It's interesting that sometimes part of the process as a mortgage loan officer, I need to run the credit. And of course, the client needs to approve, give the personal information, and we run the credit. And many times I heard that I have a perfect score. I don't want to run the credit. And it has a negative impact, minimum, but it has. But that's the only way to do that. Many times you work for the perfect credit for those occasions that you can take advantage. Yeah, I was going to say, I generally have very good credit that I take, you know, some pride in because people are like, oh, it's your credit score. And I say like 817. And they're like, what? Why? <laughs> yeah, like, but I, it, take, it, I take good care of it. And it's actually what it shows. It's much beyond the numbers that mean you're on top of your debt. This is what it means that you don't maximize the potential. You paid back. And this is what the lender want to see. Yeah. And that's another thing we we're kind of talking about was the... Uh, percentage on these loans can make a lot of difference too, right? Because a couple of years ago, or even a year ago, I think maybe it was like three or 4%. And now we're up at like eight or nine. So you're over seven, sometimes you can get in the six, but here's the tricky thing. When you put the numbers, it makes all the difference. That means, let's say for the, for the round numbers, if you have a loan of 200,000, and you could get it in the past in 3% and now in 7%. So if you don't get into the numbers, it sounds scary. And you say, you know what? I'm No way I'm getting into a mortgage of 7% instead of 3 But if you put a number, how much do you pay more jumping from 3 to 7 Or let's put theoretically, even if it doesn't go back to 3 maybe it will go down to 5 So And you can calculate, let's say in two years, how much will you pay more? Is it 2,000, 6,000, 8,000? You can put a number. And one of the things right now with the market in some areas, you can negotiate the price down. Make sure that you negotiate down in advance what you're going to pay more. Now, no one can guarantee if in two years or three years when it will be reduced. But right now, when you put the numbers, you get another perspective because sometimes it can be no way or suddenly I cannot afford that because the cost of the 200000 before, it's a few hundred dollars more per month now. So the question is, can you afford that? Do you need to lower your purchase capability because of that? Or you can say, you know what? I can afford that. I just don't like the thought that I'm paying more. So in that case, put a number to that. And that make it much easier to make a decision. Yeah, it's kind of one of those where you're like, look, I can make it work at 7%, 
And hopefully, like I negotiated a good price and in a year or two, when the, the percentage dips and I can refinance, like now I'm actually, I got a better starting price and I only paid, you know, two years of this higher interest. And now I'm at three again. And at many times, if uh, there was a large number, when I check with my clients, we were speaking about 18,000 to 20, for example, in extra payment. And we were thinking that a few months back, the house would have sold in 50,000 more because of the market. So when you check the numbers, it's really, if I'll have a very hard competition, will I really pay much more than all the extra interest altogether and even more just to get the house? So take advantage that some areas you don't have much competition right now. That's very precious. Yeah, certainly. And when you take these home loans, they generally have, from what I understand, and I could be entirely wrong here, like a 15 and a 30-year loan option. Is there any reason to take a 15? Because it seems like 30 is just always going to be a cheaper monthly payment. So that's an excellent question. I love it. So there are some lenders actually that will allow you between eight to 30 years, any number of years that you want. Sure. So from one hand, in the, the less number of years, the interest rate is better. Many times on the 10, 12, 15, or 20, you'll have a better interest rate than the 30. Many times between the 25, 27, or 30, you won't have a big deal. But here is the big, big issue. From one hand, you can get a lower interest rate. From the other hand, it can be a burden because it's very expensive. So the beautiful thing that some people are not aware that there is the term on paper and is the actual term. It's not the same. If you have, for example, a 30-year, that means you're obligated to that minimum but you can actually make a larger monthly payment and the extra of that. Paying that directly to the principal. It's not going to pay the next three months, but it's directly going to principal. So you can issue a 30-year loan and pay it off in 18 or 21 years or any other number based on the extra money that you pay. The beautiful thing in that, that if sometimes, let's say even after two, three years that you have been paying that, there are Life happens and there are other priorities and you say, you know what, I want to go back and reduce my monthly payment. You can do that. Now, what's the flip side of that? You need discipline. Will you really pay something that no one obligates you just because it's your plan and no one obligates you to do that? But financially, it gives you that flexibility that that's the beauty of that. Yeah, it's kind of one of those where, you know, a lot of people take these 30-year loans, at least the people that I have met, and they're like, I'm not going to live in this house for 30 years. Like, I don't have to, and I will just, you know, sell it at some point, and then the sale will pay off the rest of the loan that I didn't pay. So here's a very important thing. Even though, it, and it doesn't matter the number of years, when it's a fixed interest rate, you pay the same amount every month. But people, not everyone are aware that the major, in the beginning of the life of the loan, the majority of the money goes to the interest. And just a smaller part goes to the principal. So if you're going on a 30-year, and let's say that you sell after four years, do not deceive, you know, just to make sure you make clear your decision that it's not, I paid... 2000 a month for the lender, 24000 per year, 
great. After four years, I have almost 100,000. Don't expect that your debt will be lowered by 100,000. And when you put the numbers, sometimes it can be deceiving when you see the actual, oh, it didn't go much down, but really all in the sale, I need to pay the realtor. I need to fix a little things. Did I really earn some money or nothing? What, what is my end result? And that's going back to the beginning of our conversation. If you want to have an amount of cash in hand, that's the goal, that when you sell it, after a few years, after five or eight years, you want to have money in hand. Before you decide which mortgage, uh, what's called amortization schedule that you can see based on the 15 or 20 or 30 years, how much will be the principal balance, how much you owe after those number of years, after four or five or seven, whenever you think that potentially that will be your exit. And then you can decide really, does it fit your plan? Because you can end up selling and you didn't save any money. Yeah. If there wasn't any appreciation. Yep. I mean, there's certainly a lot of people who like, you know, you look at your house a couple of years in and you're like, oh, I, I paid, you know, 200,000 for it. And then if you went all the way to 30 years, you're like, hey, why did I pay 350,000 for my house? And they're like, that's just your interest year over year. Like you paid a lot more for your house than actually 200,000. Absolutely. And that's why when the lender tell you how much money you will pay monthly, make sure you're aware where your money goes. From that money, if you're escrow, that means you pay the lender for the taxes and the home insurance. It can be a large amount, but from a 2,000, maybe just a few hundreds go to your principal. And based on that, do your math. Yeah. Yep. So on the, on the idea of buying a house, do you ever like recommend people pick up kind of that like fixer upper type of house or is that just does it look good on tv and it's not good in real life (laughs) so it's so so personal because i love it on a personal level i know many others that no way i prefer to pay more i don't want to live in a construction zone i don't want to do that i don't like it so you really need to feel comfortable on doing that also the realistic logistics because if you're going to to move into the house or you need that time frame that makes sense to do that or if you want, need to pay others to do that do you even want to want to deal with that so many times it is convenience in my opinion but that's really my personal opinion on dealing with that i have so many family members friends Definitely, that's not the way to go. They won't feel comfortable. Sometimes you can feel more intimidated or suddenly begin to spend much more money than you planned because a house is is a house that means don't be surprised that you have surprises, that you begin demo something and something else come up and that can be stressing. So it's really on a personal level. And even if you want to do renovation, there are scope of work that you will feel more comfortable. If you say, you know what? The house is good, but I'll do the patio. I'll do the garage later on some weekends. Oh, really to do a fixer upper. Yeah. Where you're like, some people just want to get a key and to walk into a finished house. And there's nothing wrong with that. And some people are like, oh, I feel totally comfortable working on all of these projects. 
and it's fine that I'm not going to move in for the next couple months, or I'm going to move in with one of the bathrooms, you know, ripped apart. Yeah, absolutely. It's very personal. Yeah, I can see that. And it's one of those that I think if you're going to buy a fixer upper, you have to be aware of that price too. Like if you max out your budget, you're like, yeah, I, I afforded the house. You have to think like, oh, there's going to be a lot of money going into renovations that you otherwise might not consider. So if you're thinking on renovating, the crucial thing is to calculate what's called after repair value. That means you compare what was sold in your area. Your realtor can help you with that in the level of finish that you want. And then you have the potential value of the home after you finish the renovation. And from there, you go back. That means if, for example, the home can be valued in 100000 more, but it will cost you 150. that means you overpaid in the purchase. Even though it was less, you overpaid because you'll be underwater. That means you'll invest in the house much more than its value. So that's why it's very important if you want to do a renovation, have the entire picture, numbers, the scope of work before you even begin to make sure that financially it makes sense. Now, if you, it will be for many years to come, the, the forever home, you can say, okay, I don't care the financially. And I know I will spend certain amount more, but I'm, I will enjoy it. It's my home. And some people will feel really comfortable with that. Others know. So that's why it's very, very personal. But the most important for you to know what you're doing, to understand the numbers. Yeah. So with all of that said, is home ownership still the American dream, like the white picket fence and the manicured lawn and the little barbecue out of the corner. Like, is that still the American dream? I love the question. The big question is, is the American dream a journey or a destination? Because, and actually I had so many conversations about that. That's why I love so much your question. Because my challenge was, let's say you can qualify. You can buy the home. But if you put three and a half percent and you have mortgage like that, even you can put zero as a VA loan and you own the home, but you, uh, even though you have the title, your own title, you owe to the lender 90 or 100% of the home. Is this the American dream? It is your home, but you owe so much money. That's why in my opinion, we should look on it as a journey that as your, your needs change and evolve during your life, so maybe when you're younger or in a later part in life, maybe a multifamily as a primary resident will be much more beneficial because that means someone help you to pay, pay the mortgage. You can use your resource in so many other ways. So you live in one unit, you have other tenants, then you move on, you know, as you move on in life, you solve also the financial part because it cannot be that the American dream is just owning the home without thinking on the burden. So if you think about it as the journey, as you go along, you'll choose the path that is right for you. But not because of that excitement in the beginning and then all the challenges and frustration and uh, tension later on, you know, that's not a dream. That's more a nightmare. So let's make sure that is a good and nice dream. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those like, yes, you found the house and you got the title. And then slowly over time, you're paying the loan off. You're making the house your own. I think that's really like what's special about it is building something that's yours more than, you know, like I bought it and it's mine. Congratulations. Like, no, but does it, does it represent you? Do you like it? Do you, does it meet all of your needs? Like, you know, if everything is there for you, then sure. That's the American dream. But otherwise, like. No, you just bought a house. Like that's homeownership. That's not necessarily like representative of what the American dream is. And that's why it's so, so important to try to think without emotions before finding the home and falling in love. Because many times after you're so excited that you saw the home, you imagine yourself, you decide emotionally and justify rationally. So... You can you need to use the logic from the beginning before the really the when you before you decide what can benefit you. Yeah. So say we've we've done all this, we bought a house, especially if we bought emotionally, and now we're kind of ready to sell it to move on. Maybe we have a bigger family or whatever it is. Like a lot of people, you know, don't live in one house forever. They do sell them or they make a profit and they move up to something bigger. Is there like a good path to sale? The, the first question will be, people take it as granted that they need to sell to buy the next home. The question is, do you really need to sell and do you want to keep the home? And many clients, when I ask them that question, it's like obvious because I want to buy the next one. So the question is, can you financially profit from keeping the home And can you afford that? That means in your next home, you'll need down payment. You'll need to make sure that the monthly expense, you know, it's sustainable. That means the house that you have now, will the rent cover the expenses? Will you break even But when you don't have a tenant, you'll need to, to put additional money. And what really do you want from all that? That means you want some uh, safe safety money or someone else to continue paying your mortgage. So you have that for retirement or for a later stage in life. Let's think theoretically what can benefit you. Then is it realistic? But that's the first thing. Do you really need to sell? Do you want to continue owning and you want to find a way if you can afford that or not? Because maybe if you put yourself in a position knowing that in advance, so you put money aside every month just for the next down payment or you can refinance and the cash that you take out is the down payment of the next home but then is really what's the terms if you leave it as a rental do you want to be homeowner do you have a logistical solution for that and financially so the first thing is really if you want to move on do you really want to sell do you need to sell and what are the needs and wants for the next thing And all that, just think way before you put the house on the market. Yeah, it's kind of a different form of investment as you're like, this could either be an investment because it makes you money monthly from having a renter, or it is your investment into the next one because you sold it outright and you have, you know, this giant lump sum of cash, especially if you owned your home entirely, like now you have an enormous amount of money. Do you need to sell it because you want that giant chunk of cash or 
can that also become like its own stream of income that you get without working on it? Exactly. So it always goes back to the question, what do you, I, I want to get from this property? Besides of being the American dream and owning a property, how can that benefit me? Yeah. So I've heard people say things like, oh, it's a buyer's market or it's a seller's market. Is that like universal or does that change place to place just as the market fluctuates? In general, you have the general conditions that uh, you see across the board that it's a seller or buyer's market. But for example, now and uh, where I live, people are amazed that the interest rates are so high and they expect that to be more a buyer's market and good properties, you have bidding wars. You know, because you don't have a lot of inventory. Think about it beside the interest rate, the people that own the home and they're not obligated to move. They have right now, many of them, great mortgages. So just because they feel like they don't want to move to another place and jump from 2 or 3% to 7%. So it's better for them to renovate the home. So I would check every market. Uh, specifically, you know, but this for this given time, this time of the year, and uh, also the kind of property, because I cannot generalize in everything. Sure. And I imagine it changes like certain metropolitan areas are always going to be, you know, popular areas to buy in, like they're always going to have a high demand. Whereas like if you're out in a pretty rural area, like there might not be a demand to buy in your area at all. And so like, that's got to fluctuate a little where it's, there's some give and take depending on if people need to be there or if they care to be there. Exactly. That's a perfect what you mentioned, because that's one aspect also workplaces, you know, do you have any potential? Do you have any new companies coming in? So you expect people to come in or people are leaving the area. So you can sometimes see trends, you know, in or out of the area. And there's going to be different people as well. Like some people want to be able to walk to work and some people are like, I'm fine with a 45 minute commute. <laughs> Absolutely. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. I think this has all been great. Like it's been very informational. I had a listener question that I thought was very interesting and it kind of plays to some of what we've talked about today. So Christina, thank you for the question. Christina asked, is it possible for a single person to get a home with a loan. And it feels like this is kind of, you know, like all the culmination of our conversation has, because it's a, it's a great question. And there's a lot of like pricing increases as, you know, there's bidding wars, things like that. And it kind of outpaces wages at some point, like not necessarily everyone's wages are increasing with the market. And so I've heard a lot of people you know, kind of complain that they're like, I've been saving up money and it's really hard to make up this difference as a single person compared to like having two lenders or two people to, to take to a lender. Like that makes a big difference. It's excellent question. And the lender don't take it into consideration at all. How many people are in the loan? What he check that the income qualify, for example, that you have a certain number of a length of history, that uh, if you have a W-2, if you're self-employed, the taxes. So you look about qualified income. That's all, the only thing that he cared, that the paperwork and everything and the numbers can work. 
and the expenses. Now, if, for example, someone was looking to put a 20% down payment and be because of all what's happening, maybe a different mortgage will be beneficial that you can put just 5%, just 3.5%, just 10%. But knowing that you have some safety money, you know, for other expenses of the transaction. So it really doesn't matter the number of people on the loan. It just going back to that DTI, debt to income ratio. How much is the percentage between the expenses and the income? Yeah, it's certainly one of those like, oh, a number will always you know, get you a better result generally. But if you have one person that's relatively debt-free and makes a decent amount of money, they may entirely overshadow two people that have an okay income but have a lot of debt. Like they Absolutely. And for example, many times a car lease can be the deal breaker that you don't qualify, for example. So it's absolutely geared to how much is your debt and how much can you afford? Yep. Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely so right. It goes right back to the start of our conversation where it's like, make sure you have good credit. Make sure you're relatively debt free as much as you can be. Make sure you have that down payment or, you know, your loan options as well as, you know, if this is just way outside of your budget. Like you may just look somewhere else that is a little cheaper, like look to those rural areas. I know not everyone wants a commute, but. Let me give you another example. For example, if you don't have, or, or sometimes, you know, even if you have the budget, but is the work insecurity the situation today? So we're going back to the multifamily that maybe that wasn't the ideal American dream, but that can be the step that will guide you to the next thing. So some lenders will ask you uh, to really be able to fund the entire duplex or quadruplex. Others, if you have tenant in place, they will take, and that means they are already leased in place and you can prove income at least of the other units just to leave one unit free for you. So some lenders will accept that income. So if you say, you know what, I cannot qualify for that amount, but actually it might be easier to qualify for a larger property that is more expensive, but I have income from the tenants. And then you make sure that you stop paying the rent, you move in, you have that property, you have that safety. And if your expenses really went down because you have the other tenants, the other uh, rents, so you can save more for your next thing. And so trying to think out of the box or just kick out the box. <laughs> and that's an interesting way to think about is you're like, instead of looking smaller or further away, why don't you look bigger? And you're like, wait, what? Like bigger? That's the opposite direction. You're like, yes, it is. And here's why. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. All right. Well, this has been fantastic. Like, I feel like we've learned a lot and you did a great job covering this. I've appreciated having you on. I wanted to give you some time to just say like where people can find you and that you wrote a book and all of these things. Thank you very much. My website is askorly.com, A-S-K-O-R-L-I.com. And the book will come up in two months and all the information, you can find it on the website. Awesome. Well, really, thank you so much. And if people go and they pick up these books, leave good reviews. I always make sure to say that helps other people find things. But 
more than anything, thank you so much for being here. I've appreciated your time immensely. It has been so awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Hopefully you found some value with our real estate expert. I'm actually just looking to find a new place myself, and this interview gave me a lot to consider. Make sure you do all the good stuff for the show, like rate, review, like, subscribe. Reach out, dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or on any of the social media if you want to reach me. Otherwise, that's it for this week. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you all back here on Monday. Stay dumb.